show of hands, how many of you in this room have some sort of a Bible verse or inspirational Bible quote hanging up somewhere in your house? A plaque, a, a, a picture, maybe you've got it stenciled on your wall when you people walk in. Okay, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's right, for I know the plans I have for you. Rejoice in the Lord. These are common, popular verses that adorn walls and homes all over the world. Keep them up. How many of you have something like that in your house? Now, keep it raised if your verse comes from the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Zero, 100% accuracy. Yeah, you're, you're not gonna walk into Hobby Lobby and find a verse from Leviticus that people are gonna walk home and put on their wall. For example, imagine this plaque was hanging in your home when people walked in. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come, wherever you live. Now maybe during COVID, some of us would have appreciated some permission. It's the Lord's, leave me alone. I looked through a lot of verses and, and some of them you, you can't really put up on the screen. Um, but this one I actually might suggest that would be a seller at Hobby Lobby. This one might work. If a man's hair has fallen from his head, he is bald and he is clean. So leave me alone. I, uh, the Bible esteems me. So I knew I'd get some amens from this group. I was going to put pictures of you up here, but I didn't think that was appropriate. Leviticus is a strange book. It is probably the most mocked, ridiculed, and skipped over book in the Bible. You've probably heard people that have set out in January to, to read through the Bible in the year. And what do people always say? Oh, I was doing great till I got to Leviticus and then I gave up. Leviticus is a tough book. I'm squeamish. And when I get to those chapters on dermatology, I'm like, I don't want to know what to do with sores and boils. You are never going to catch me watching an episode of that Dr. Pimple Popper guy. Like, why is that even a thing? But there are parts of Leviticus that really, like, that make you kind of cringe. I'll be the first person in line to admit and to acknowledge that Leviticus is a challenging book to read. In fact, just this week, I had a young man that wanted to start reading his Bible, and he asked that age-old question. Where should I start reading? And I said, well, Leviticus, of course. <laughs> Everything you need. No, I said John, like everyone says John. But Leviticus is tough. It's easy to understand why the book is kind of glossed over, ignored, and even mocked. So that's why I decided to preach on it today. Because the book of Leviticus isn't outdated, even though it was written 3,000 years ago. It's not irrelevant, even though it is filled with ceremonial laws that no longer apply to us as New Testament believers. And it's not to be ignored because we believe that all scripture is inspired and it's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, all of it, even Leviticus. 
In fact, many Old Testament scholars even suggest that Leviticus is the most important book in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the reason why they say that is because they notice a literary device, a literary structure that is used in in, uh, poetry and all sorts of works of literature called a chiasm. A chiasm is a tool, it's a device that's used similar to how a poet would use uh, parallelism or hyperbole, these literary devices that are used to emphasize a point. Here's how a chiasm works. If you want to accentuate one principle or one point, you would put that singular point into a series of odd concepts, an odd number of principles And you would funnel all of those principles right to the middle so that the one you want to emphasize stands out. So if a young lad were wanting to write a poem or a song for his beloved, and he wanted to extol the virtues of her beauty, he would come up with a five-sentence or a five-stanza poem. And the first and fifth verses or stanzas would um, emphasize her sense of humor. The second and the fourth verses would emphasize her kindness. And that third verse that stands alone, that doesn't have a parallel, would be about her beauty. All of the concepts would funnel right toward the one that stands alone in order to highlight it and to emphasize it. And many Old Testament scholars see a chiastic structure in the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch. Because they see similar themes in Genesis and Deuteronomy in Exodus and Numbers, and the book that stands alone is Leviticus, meaning that possibly it is the premier, it is the most essential book in the Pentateuch because it talks about things that lay the foundation for the moral law. It talks about uh, the concept of atonement and sacrifice and holiness. Leviticus is an important book, although challenging to read, So the question for us is, how should we, as New Testament believers, relate to this Old Testament book? We're not Israelites wandering in the desert with Moses. So how should New Testament believers relate to the Old Testament? I would suggest that we relate to the Old Testament just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't treat the Old Testament like we treat an old pair of shoes or an outdated, antiquated laptop. He didn't discard the Old Testament and treat it as if it were trash. Instead, he esteemed it. He quoted it liberally, and then he explained it. So as we unpack this chapter of Leviticus, I hope to make the instructions as relevant for us today as they were when they were first given to the Israelites thousands of years ago. As the text was being read this morning, you likely noticed some repetition And it's important that we draw out this repetition as we begin. Because repetition is just like that chiasm that I explained. Repetition was the tool that Bible writers, that that writers in, in antiquity used to emphasize points. They didn't have the same tools available to us that we do when we're writing today. We have all sorts of things that we can do to add emphasis. If you have ever received a text message or an email from me, you will probably notice an exclamation point or two. I literally have gone through emails and had to delete every sentence had an, email, had, a, had an exclamation point. So I have to delete them because it looks weird. But we can emphasize 
phrases with an exclamation point, with italicies. We can boldface. We can change the font. We can do all sorts of things to emphasize words or phrases. The way they did it in the Bible was to repeat. So as the text was being read, you likely noticed a whole bunch of you shalls, you musts, do this, and don't do that. These phrases oftentimes give the Bible a bad rap, don't they? You've heard the phrase, oh, the Bible's just a big book full of do's and don'ts that are just there to spoil my fun. You've heard that. But these rules and regulations are there for a reason. I'm going to be referring to them as precepts. What is a precept? A precept is a law. It's a rule or it's a commandment given by God to govern our behavior. God was very concerned about the behavior of his people, of his children, especially at the time that the law was given. And you all have precepts as well. If you're a parent, you have got some specific rules for the children in your home. If you are a teacher, you have some precepts for the students in your classroom. If you are a police officer, you have certain precepts that you expect your citizens to fall in line with. So as a parent, I have heard pushback. I have heard pushback from children who have said, well, my friend's parents don't make their child have a curfew. Um, my, my friends are able to watch this movie. And I say the same things you probably say. I'm not their parent. I'm your parent. And you will follow my precepts, my rules. A rule is expected to be followed. It is rigid. It has to be rigid or it's really not that effective. In these short 18 verses, I counted 35 separate and distinct commands or precepts. Let's take a look at the very first one. Verse two, the Lord is telling Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy. That doesn't come across as a suggestion, does it? It doesn't come across as if Moses is looking out among the Israelites and he's like, hey guys, um, if, if you get around to it and if you feel so inclined, maybe you just might want to, I don't know, be holy or something. It doesn't come across like that, does it? It comes across as a clear command to the nation of Israel. And lest we think that Leviticus is old and outdated and irrelevant, let me just pause here to note that the apostle Peter quotes this very verse when he's talking to the New Testament church in 70 AD. He quotes this be holy passage. So what is God telling his people? What is the expectation of God's followers if they are told to be holy? God wanted his people, he wanted his children to be distinct. Not morally perfect, but categorically different. He wanted them to be set apart from every other nation on earth. God didn't want the Israelites to look like, to act like, or to worship like the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, or the mosquito bites. His, his precepts were intentionally and specifically put into place to make the Israelites stand out as a distinct and separate 
people. Precepts are really, really important because they clearly defined the boundaries. They let us know exactly what God expects of us. By definitions, God's, his commands, his precepts, they're rigid, they're exacting, and they are clearly defined. What does he say right here in this text? He says things like, be holy. He says, respect your parents and observe the Sabbath. He says, don't make idols. He says, don't lie. Don't bear false witnesses. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Do those sound familiar? Leviticus 19 is a retelling, a recounting of the Ten Commandments. And what was the Ten Commandments written in? They were written in stone, harsh, rigid, exacting stone. But here's what I love about this passage, and it's why I picked it. God doesn't just stop with the precepts. God doesn't just leave us here and give us these rules without explanation. He doesn't leave it up to us to try to decide what we think he means. He goes on to tell us exactly what it looks like when we put his precepts in action. He moves from the rigid to the familiar so we can see what he requires of us. What do holy people look like? Verse three, each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbath. What does a holy person look like? Well, they're respectful. They give honor to whom honor is due. What do holy people look like? Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. What does a holy person look like? Well, a holy person is generous. During the time of harvest, there were actually provisions put in place to make sure that there was extra left for those that were poor and they were in need. The Israelites weren't allowed to go back and pick up things they missed and they were intentionally told, don't harvest the perimeter. That is for the vulnerable and the poor. What does a holy person look like? Well, they're generous. What do holy people look like? Verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. What do holy people look like? They are just and honorable. They were not to show favoritism or impartiality based on the social, social status of the person we're dealing with. In the book of James, James picks up on the same principle. He carries over this principle into the New Testament. When he tells leaders, hey, you know what? When you're trying to set up your little church community and a rich person comes in, please don't show partiality to them because you think they're going to tithe and they're going to help your salary. And please don't take that poor person and shove them off to the side. Don't do that. Why? Because holy people act differently. They are just and honorable. What do holy people look like? Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. God seems to be very concerned about how his children treated their most vulnerable neighbors. 
As he was setting up his kingdom community, God established rules that were designed to show up, to be seen, because his people were supposed to look a certain way. Friends, when we respect others, when we are kind and generous, when we love others, God's holiness is manifested through our behavior and we make his invisible attributes visible. Behind every precept, behind every rule, there must be a guiding principle that gives an application or a picture for why we ought to follow that rule. Without a guiding principle behind the rule, we become merely legalists who follow rules without understanding the reason behind it. Exhibit A for a rule follower that was a legalist is the Pharisees. They did a fantastic job of obeying the rules. They just had no understanding for why they were doing it. They were masters of keeping the rules. In fact, they even expanded upon the rules because they were so committed to staying in that tight little box. When it said you're supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy, you're not supposed to work. Did you know that you could eat an orange on the Sabbath? You just couldn't peel it. You had to peel it the day before because that'd be working. They, they went so far overboard and they just became legalists, stuck on the rules without understanding the principle behind it. That's why Jesus had to pull them aside and say, you guys, you've missed the point. I know you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Good job for not killing people. But did you know that I always meant from the very beginning, you shouldn't even have hate in your heart? I know you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Good job for obeying the rule. But did you know that I've always meant from the very beginning, there's a spirit behind the letter of the law. You shouldn't even have lust in your heart. You see, the Pharisees got stuck. They got hung up on the precepts. So what does the Leviticus do? Leviticus shows us the principles behind the precepts. What did Jesus do? He helped explain and articulate the letter of the law. A precept can modify behavior. And that's about as far as it can go. But we're not interested in merely behavior modification we are interested in spiritual transformation and that comes from aligning our heart and our desires with the one that gave us the precepts. We want our precepts to manifest themselves in a changed lifestyle. Precepts are important to define boundaries, but to stop there is legalism. Understanding the principle behind the precept is important because it gives us a reason and it gives us a picture behind the rule. But if we stop there, it's merely moralism. There's one more step that God takes in this passage. There's one more thing that God does for us to complete the circuit, to round out this beautiful passage. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with my wife after our first child was born. After Josiah was born and he started talking, first word obviously was dad. And then it was baseball. <laughs> and then came those glorious words, Atlanta Braves. We knew this child was gonna be a genius. When, when he started 
saying words. I remember asking Tammy, when Josiah reaches that stage in life, when he is obsessed with one question and one question only, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when Josiah starts asking why? Are we going to do that thing as parents that we just say, because I said so? You want to know what my wife said? <laughs> she said, darn right, I'm the mom. Darn right, I'm going to pull out that trump card because I said so. You want to know what this naive dodo head said? <laughs> I said, well, I believe this little child, this little human, he deserves an answer. So I am going to reason with a two-year-old. So one day, <laughs> I asked Josiah to do something that had, you know, obviously eternal significance, like put your shoes on before you go outside. Why? Well, Josiah, as your father, let me explain the reason behind my precept. When you go outside in your socks, you might step on a rock or a piece of glass, and I don't want you to get hurt. And your dad loves you, so I'm trying to protect you and provide for you, so please put on your shoes. But why? <laughs> because if you go outside in your socks, you might, you might rip your socks, and then I'm going to have to buy you new socks, and, and I would prefer to not have to do that. So that is my precept, son. Please put your shoes on. But Why? So a couple more times it actually happened. That moment happened where I just said, because I said so and it felt so good. <laughs> it was such a beautiful moment. God has every right to stop with because I said so. He could do that. He could just say, Precept, do it now. I'm the boss. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. He gives an answer to the question, why? Why should I be holy? Verse 2 again gives us that answer. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Remember when I mentioned there were two repeated phrases or concepts in this text? One was all the do's and the don'ts and the shalls and the shoulds. The second repeated phrase is also imperatively important. And it's that phrase, I am the Lord your God. Why is this so important? Because it shows us the personal nature of God. Every single one of his precepts are given relationally, not dispassionately, not tyrannically, not dictatorially. His precepts are given to us relationally. They are personal because they are related. They are completely rooted in who he is. God wants us to be a peculiar people because he is a peculiar God. And I mean peculiar in the sense that we ought to be distinct. 
unique and holy other because that's what our God is like. There is no other God like our God. He is both holy and personal. He is transcendent and majestic and glorious. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. No one could ever know the mind of God. He is totally holy and transcendent, yet he is also imminent and personal. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. Our God, the God of the Bible, is totally distinct from and different from every other false God that exists in the world. He is holy. He is different. And the call for us is to also, like him, be totally distinct and different. When he set up his covenant relationship with Israel, he said over and over again, you shall be my people and I will be your God. That is relational language. You will be set apart for my purposes and I will be set apart as your God. I will protect you and I will provide you if you trust me and follow my commandments. I want you to worship me alone for I am the one true God that is worthy of worship. I am distinct from all those man-made idols and those Asherah poles that will rot and decay and ultimately fall over. I am almighty. I am sovereign. I am omniscient. There is no one like me. I am set apart and totally different and I want you to be set apart and different from every other people group on the planet. So follow my rules. Trust the principles behind my rules. And remember the unique person that gives you the perfect example to strive after. Our example of holiness, of set-apartness, must be that universal standard of God. Because when it comes to pursuing a life of holiness, it's important that we avoid the trap of comparing ourselves to other people. Because when we compare ourselves to other people, we're really not pursuing true holiness. Rather, what we're pursuing is cultural holiness. The Bible doesn't say, be holy for your pastor is holy. Or be holy because your grandma is holy. We cannot look to the behavior of others to define our standard of holiness. We are commanded to be holy because God is holy. His holiness is intrinsic to his nature. His holiness is objective. It is constant and it supersedes personal opinion and it overrides subjective, changing cultural trends. 2 Timothy gives us a warning. And I think we are living in the days that we were warned about. 2 Timothy says that there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine or truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. My friends, there is no place for my truth or your truth when it comes to the holiness of God. There is simply the truth, the standard by which we measure our commitment to being set apart for his purposes. 
When we compare ourselves to others, we can begin to feel really good about ourselves because we aren't as bad as the person that we're comparing to. We can become self-righteous because we pray more, we serve more, or we attend church more than that other less holy person. Or we may think that we're pursuing a holy lifestyle because we swear less, we drink less, or we gamble less than that heathen that we feel morally superior to. But thinking this way is a trap. Because serving, swearing, and gambling are merely external behaviors that are focused on nothing more than rule following, not motivated by a desire to be in a right relationship with a personal, loving, and holy God. We become like what we focus on. If we focus on rules, we become legalists. If we focus on the behavior of others, to define our commitment to pursuing holiness, we are in trouble. We are in trouble because we lower our standard to a secular cultural norm. And those norms are constantly shifting and changing. And the world's standards of right and wrong are not getting stricter to look more like God. Instead, those standards are getting far looser. And this, my friends, is why we must keep our focus on the standard of perfection, the Lord, our God. As we pursue a life of holiness, our actions must always be consistent with God's character, the person that explains the principles behind his precepts. Why is it wrong to lie? Because God is truth. Why is it wrong to commit adultery? Because God is faithful. Why is it wrong to murder? Because God is life. Why is it wrong to hate? Because God is love. Our text starts in verse 2 with a command to be holy. And it ends with an exhortation to love others. Those don't sound like archaic, outdated, irrelevant Old Testament concepts, do they? The call to holiness and to loving others is as important for Christians today as it was for those wandering in the desert all those years ago. In fact, one day, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he gave them a similar message to the one that I just gave you. He told them to be holy. He told them that they ought to look very different from everyone else that they came into contact with. Jesus told his disciples that he wanted them to be a peculiar people and he gave them a challenge. He said, friends, you've watched the way I treat people. You have watched the way that I have dealt with the poor and the oppressed. You've seen the way that I relate to my father and I want you to act just like me. Nobody knew what to do with me. I threw people off and I confused people. And I want you to cause people to be surprised by the way you deal with people. Just like people were surprised when I touched that leper. Just like people were surprised when I protected the woman caught in adultery. And just like people were totally shocked when I prayed forgiveness for that Roman soldier that was driving those nails into my hand. I want you to stand out I want you to be set apart. 
I want you to live differently as a sign to the world that you are my followers. He said, by this shall all people know that you are my followers by the way that you love one another. Jesus didn't quote Leviticus 19, but he delivered the same message to his disciples that day that Moses gave to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Be holy, for I am holy. When we chose our four strategic priorities and we laid them out for you at our last Envision Weekend, one of them was that we want to be a church that's neighbor-loving, and it is built upon all of these principles. We want to be a church that, that shows our community and our neighbors how much we love them by the way that we treat and by the way that we serve them and the way that we esteem them. And there's a second strategic priority that will happen automatically if we follow that first one. And it's to be culture shaping. My friends, if we want to change our culture, if we want to change our family, if we want to change our our community, if we want to change our nation, it starts with being a holy people because it matters when we act with justice. It matters when we are honorable and we are loving and respectful when we are a holy people and when we exhibit and express and manifest the very attributes of God, it changes lives. So together, as followers of Christ, let's live such unique lives. Let's live in such a way that those who observe our behavior will have no other option than to conclude that we must follow an amazing, unique, matchless holy God. And I think we can do it. Let's pray.